are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Gerald Horn, the author of The Counter-Revolution of 1776 and a dozen other very important historical books to talk about whether or not independence was a mistake. So you're the author of Counter-Revolution of 1776. What motivated you to write that book? Well, I'm a person of the left, and I've been writing all these books about socialist movements in the United States. And up to a certain point, I think that I became somewhat dissatisfied with that particular work that I was doing because I didn't think it was sufficiently explanatory in answering the question that has dogged so many for decades, if not longer, which is why is there not a stronger left movement in the United States of America in the leading imperialist country? And so as a result, I started working my way back in terms of trying to understand US history. If you look at the list of books that I've written, you'll see that I began, I wrote a book on Mexico and the Mexican Revolution, 1910 to 1920. And I wrote a book on the South Seas, the South Pacific, and the attempt by US slave traders post the end of the US Civil War, post 1865, to continue the slave trade in Melanesia and Polynesia. I wrote a book about the slave trade to Brazil and the role of US nationals in the slave trade to Brazil. I wrote a book about uh, Black Americans and how they were working with the abolitionist movement, not least in London, to try to push back against the United States post the formation of the United States. And then (laughs) I finally worked my way back to 1776, the origins of the United States. And keep in mind as well that I had written a book on Zimbabwe, and one of the things I wrote in that book on Zimbabwe, which actually I think came out in 2000, 2001, is that this Southern African nation, which had a European minority, mostly British, that revolted against British rule in 1965 because they thought Britain was moving towards one person, one vote, an African majority rule, and rather than succumb, to that outcome, they decided to overthrow British rule. And the minority said that they were walking in the footsteps of 1776. So I had that in the back of my mind, which was having a rather negative and jaundiced and sour viewpoint of settler revolts. Then of course, being a student of politics and history, I'm quite familiar with the settlers revolt in North Africa and Algeria that preceded the independence of Algeria circa 1962. So those were some of my animating thoughts when I tackled the subject of 1776. And I quickly came to the conclusion that the triggers for 1776 included A, the so-called Royal Proclamation of 1762-1763, where London expressed reservations about continuing to move west, seizing the land of the Native Americans for the benefit of real estate speculators like George Washington, 
footnote, having a real estate speculator in the Oval Office today <laughs> is not necessarily unique or singular. And secondly, Somerset's case in the early 1770s in London basically makes illegal slavery in England itself. And as I try to point out, that helps to convince many of the leading slaveholders who become founders in the United States of America, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry. I believe John Adams is the only signer of the Declaration of Independence who didn't have slaves. And he was a lawyer for slave owners. Oh, okay. <laughs> as I point out in the book. So, so he was profiting from slavery too. So that, of course, came to me quickly. And then if you look at the book, you'll notice that I go really back to 1688, mm -hmm. the so-called Glorious Revolution in England, which in many ways unleashed the merchant class, which was chafing under the fact that it was the monarch under the Royal African Company, which had been organized in 1672, that had a kind of monopoly over the lushly lucrative African slave trade. And the Glorious Revolution, so-called, among other things, deregulated the African slave trade, made for free trade in Africans, sending a tidal wave of Africans across the Atlantic as the merchant class descended on Africa with the maniacal energy of crazed bees, <laughs> manacling and handcuffing every African in sight, dragging them across the Atlantic. But of course, People don't want to be kidnapped and work for free. And so this leads to slave revolts. And I should also mention two other footnotes. One, in terms of my working my way back in time, you might know that I put out a book on the 17th century, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. Yes, I haven't read that, but I've seen it. <laughs> the Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And secondly, within days, I'll put out a book on the 16th century. The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Mm -hmm. And so this is a post-1492 book, which I'm happy to say is something that I hope makes an impression. I'm excited to read actually both of them. So the first thing I hadn't connected until I read your book was the connection between the slave trade in the Caribbean and the one in the Carolinas. So how were they connected? And a lot of the settlers from the Caribbean moved to the Carolinas too, and why? Well, this happens uh, post the organizing of the Royal African Company. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say, post 1672, uh, you had these significant slave revolts in Barbados and Jamaica in particular. And both had been, quote, settled, unquote, by uh, English settlers in particular in the pre-preceding decades. And in some ways, I think I say this in the book, uh, that what happened with regard to the Caribbean and North America was in some ways relevant to my Southern African projects in the sense that you may know that after Britain abolished slavery in the 1830s, this was after they had taken over South Africa at the beginning of the 19th century. You had a so-called great trek as the Afrikaners, those of Dutch and French Protestant descent, tried to escape British rule. And they had this great trek northward 
to try to escape British rule and also eastward. And so I use the term Great Trek to describe what's happening as the slave owners move from the Caribbean to the Carolinas. There were slave revolts and many people didn't want to lose their lives and their investments. And so therefore they decamp to South Carolina. And of course, South Carolina has been known by many historians to be for the longest an adjunct of Barbados. And in fact, one of the few trips that George Washington took outside of North America was to Barbados, which is not accidental. And in order to understand that particular twist in history, it might be useful to look at my 17th century book where I talk about the rise of Oliver Cromwell in England and the forces that beheaded a king and at least for a while set up a kind of republic or certainly set up an anti-monarch rule. And I think part of the problem with the left in the United States because as I said, that's really what got me on this journey, is that their viewpoints have been a bit too schematic. What I mean is, is that, oh, you know, a republic is a great leap forward for humanity uh-huh. over monarchy. Well, it may have been a great leap forward for the Europeans. It certainly wasn't a great leap forward for Africans. You know, we wound up enslaved. Absolutely not. Yeah. And so, you know, this is a sort of, and then these people wonder what a, Left-wing movement is so small, when basically they've made this major ideological concession to those who rule them. And then they wonder how you wind up with Donald Trump. And there's an article in the New York Times uh, today, as a matter of fact, at least the online edition, talking about 50 years ago this week, tens of thousands of unionized Euro-American workers marched on Wall Street to try to overthrow capitalism. No. They were marching in support of the war in Vietnam and in support of President Nixon and beating up anti-war protests. Oh, Lord. That's a counter-revolution. <laughs> yeah, that, that's just... I, I, I share your entire frustration with the left, especially... I mean, I started this podcast because of the excessive glorification of American history. <laughs> so I'm very harsh on American history. And... Yes. It's even written on the Declaration of Independence where they say that they're tired of like merciless savages, which shows. So it's not even a secret that what the quote unquote founders plan was. So one thing that's underplayed in U.S. history is the amount of revolt and sabotage. For example, you described the one in, I believe, Manhattan, where a bunch of, I believe there were Catholic slaves who went and burnt a lot of um, uh, farms and um, that brought in a lot of paranoia. So it seems like history is ripe with that kind of sabotage and revolt and it's always underplayed in U.S. books. Well, I think the Attorney General of the United States in a recent interview put it succinctly, if not cynically, when they asked him, how do you think historians would look at your dropping charges against Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who, of course, pleaded guilty to mm-hmm. lying to the FBI. And then, of course, the right wing, and Mr. Trump got upset, and so they dropped the charges. And so Mr. Barr said, well, you know, it depends on who writes the history, because history is usually written by the winners. <laughs> and and uh, that was rather cynical, but not necessarily inaccurate. Nope. Uh, 
and, and, and speaking of this period in which we're talking about, one of the gravest weaknesses, I might even call it a crime, of many of the writers of US history, it, it really gloss over genocide against Native Americans. And if you can gloss over genocide, if you can rationalize genocide, you can rationalize anything. And what, what stressed is, is how you know, these Europeans, fresh off the boat, were able to accomplish the so-called American dream, which, which is true. But <laughs> the flip side. But weren't they like funded by rich European stockholders? Like, so I don't know if I believe the fresh, like a lot of them were pretty well funded, like ventures. Well, it, it, was, it was diverse. In my 16th century book, I look at the class composition of the settlers who came to what we call North Carolina in 1587. And certainly they were supported by an investor class in London, but it included many craftsmen. It included many, what you might even call proletarians. But see, that gets to to my major point, uh, which is that the United States, or I should say settler colonialism in North America, was started as a class collaborationist project. That is to say that there was collaboration between and amongst Europeans across class lines. In fact, in my 17th century book, one of the turning points I point to is 1676 and Bacon's Rebellion, where a diverse class of mostly Europeans across class lines actually revolt against the British. Why? Because they think the British are not, excuse me, I should say the English, because they think the English are not moving sufficiently aggressive like taking the land of the Native Americans. And they wanted, they wanted to light a fire under the colonial administration so that they could get the land. And for example, to fast forward to another episode in history that's rather dastardly, that's glossed over by uh, US historians, uh, during the midst of the US Civil War in the 1860s, the so-called Homestead Act was passed, which basically was a massive land theft from Native Americans with the land not only creating these land-grant universities, some of which are still with us, which had exclusive admission, only admitting Euro-Americans and people of European descent, but also t- turning over the land to Europeans of diverse class backgrounds, not, not just the 1%. I mean, that helped to stabilize the system by giving these poor Europeans a stake in the system, so to speak. And as I said, the the historians have just presented one side of the coin, uh, which is celebrating the fact that there was a so-called American dream and with a little bit of luck and a lot of pluck, somebody fresh off the boat could become wealthy. And and that's true to an extent, but at whose expense? I mean, you know, at the expense of the Native Americans, at the expense of the Africans. Now, there's another point that I, I talk about in my uh, only a bit in the 1776 book. I elaborated on it in the 17th century book, and I really look at the roots in my 16th century book. And that's the construction of whiteness. That is to say, how was it that those who warred in Europe, English versus Irish, English versus Scots, British versus German, German versus French, Serb versus Karat, Pole versus Russian? I mean, the list is endless. But all of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic, they're rebranded. I mean, you know, Madison Avenue should study this very carefully. They, they're rebranded and they materialize as, quote, white, unquote. And of course, 
you know, these people on the left like to talk about identity politics, but they never talk about this kind of identity politics. Oh, absolutely not. Which is the most notorious identity politics probably in world history. And it's scandalous that <laughs> they don't talk about this. You're absolutely right. But one more thing you elaborate in the book is how unstable the colony is because there's the French, the British, and the yes. Spanish, and the right. like. So can you talk about like, so that created a certain kind of instability amongst the colony. And how did the British address that quote unquote instability? Well, it's very interesting. So you have the Spanish in Cuba mm-hmm. and the Spanish in Spanish Florida, uh, for the most part. And then you had the French in Quebec. And there had been a long history of the French in particular uh, trying to capitalize upon the fact that their antagonists, be it Spain or the English or the British, were heavily reliant upon African labor. And so I talk about this guy in my 16th century book, Jacques Desoria, say in the 1560s going forward, who's sort of a maritime John Brown. You remember John Brown, 1859, who tries to lead an uprising against slavery and Virginia, what is now West Virginia, and is captured by Robert E. Lee, who goes on to try to overthrow the United States government to perpetuate slavery forevermore. Of course, W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black intellectual, writes this biography of John Brown. But so you you mentioned earlier these slave revolts in Manhattan, 1712 Mm -hmm. and 1741. It's evidence to suggest that the French had a hand in the one in 1712 and the Spanish had a a role in the one of 1741. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as I talk about in the um, 1776 book, the war that London wages against the French in Quebec between 1756 and 1763, which basically they win, and of course has left Canada split linguistically to this very day between a mostly French population in Quebec and a mostly English-speaking population west of Quebec. And also the British, at least for a while, ousted the Spanish from Cuba uh, from 17, for about 20 years, from about 1763 to 1783. And so that was their response to the fact that, that uh, their antagonists were collaborating with the enslaved population. But what happens, of course, is that the British want to impose taxes on the settlers because they did this for their benefit. You know, they were squashing France and Quebec and the Spanish in Florida in order to give the settlers in North America a free reign to take the land of the Native Americans and further bash the Africans. But of course, uh, as you know, the settlers didn't want to pay taxes, and that becomes another reason for the rebellion against British rule leading to the formation of the United States of America. So for me, one of the most interesting parts is how in Jamaica, there was a group of African-originated people that kept on rebelling, and then finally the crown was forced to make a treaty with them. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, the Maroons. I mean, Jamaica, as I'm sure you know, has a very militant history that Jamaicans are very proud of, (laughs) as they should be. Maroons are a complicated phenomenon. I mean, first of all, a turning point in terms of the history of enslavement in the Americas comes in the 1650s, when Oliver Cromwell and his forces that had beheaded the king basically oust the Spanish from Jamaica. And... However, 
the Maroons, that is to say, the Maroons were these African populations that had escaped the jurisdiction of the colonizers, first the Spanish and then the English. And part of this secret, if you'd like, to Jamaican rebelliousness, and you can say the same thing for Haiti, for that matter, is that it's mountainous. Uh, as they say in Haiti, there are mountains followed by mountains. And so it became a rather simple matter for these Africans to escape the jurisdiction of London by moving into the mountains and then raiding the uh, plantations, the sugar plantations. And the situation got so dire by the 1730s that there was talk that there would be a precursor to the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution, as you know, is 1791 to 1804. Uh, there was fretting uh, that there'd be a precursor in Jamaica as early as the 1730s. But see, the spanner in the works, as they say in London, is that the deal <laughs> that the Maroons <laughs> cut with London obligated them to return escaping enslaved Africans who escaped to the mountains. Oh, then they're splitting up uh, solidarity right there because they're changing up interests. Of course, of course. I mean, of course, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. But in any case, this was the concession uh, that they had to make. Keep in mind, of course, the Maroon communities, just like slave rebellions are nothing new. My 16th century book, I talk about uh, less than 20 years after the arrival of Columbus, of course, October of 1492 that you have uh, slave revolts in Puerto Rico uh, as early as what, 1512, 1513. You have major slave revolts in what is now the Dominican Republic in the 1520s. And the beat continues. And it, it, it's really a shame, I, I must say, that these uh, historians, as they call themselves, <laughs> have often ignored th this kind of history. You know, they just talk, they talk about one side of the equation, which is, you know, what these Europeans were doing. And even, even there's even a progressive historian whose name I will not mention, who it's a very poignant scene. He, he talks about how he has a black student and he's trying to convince this black student that sadly enough, there wasn't that much rebelliousness amongst the Africans. I mean, whenever I think about that, I get furious because it's, it's misleading the student is doing violence to history. And it makes me wonder, quite frankly, about those who call themselves progressive. Oh, absolutely. And it seems like, to me at least, what I've noticed is, yeah, they kind of, a lot of the progressive people give graphic detail about the cruelty, but then they don't talk about the fight back to show you how- Exactly, exactly. Want to help us continue recounting history not just from the cruelty inflicted, but also from those who fought back? Then help us help you arm yourselves with the unexamined history of struggle against empire by going to historically.substack.com. There you can subscribe to our newsletter, listen to our podcast, and help support us with your subscription. That's historically.substack.com. major rebellion you talk about is the Stono Rebellion, which yes. was led by people from Angola who were... Yes. Well, it's very interesting that circa 1739 in South Carolina, now recall we talked about South Carolina being, quote, settled 
maybe six or seven decades previously by folks fleeing Barbados. And historically, the Africans had outnumbered the Europeans. In fact, in order to understand the early history of the United States and the concessions made to certain Europeans, if you look at the end of my book, I, I talk about the Dominican Republic in the 1930s under Trujillo, the dictator, mm -hmm. and how Jewish people fleeing Nazism, one of the few places they could go to was the DR. Was that because Trujillo was progressive? Hell no. He was trying to whiten the population, basically. They did that in Cuba too. They had a, the official policy was blanqueamiento or something sure. like that. And so you have the same thing in the United States, supposedly, this is a progressive place so people don't talk about. So, <laughs> so, so what's interesting is that the Africans were obviously paying attention to what's going on in the vicinity because, <laughs> whenever I think about this, I shouldn't laugh, I should cry. So in 1733, you would have the formation of the colony in Georgia, uh, just south of South Carolina by James Oglethorpe. And the principle of Georgia was no Negroes allowed. It was gonna be a so-called all white colony. Kind of like Oregon. <laughs> and I, I, I talk about that in the book because what happens is that number one, that creates all these class contradictions between and amongst the Europeans because you know some of the Europeans then would have to work in the fields, other Europeans in the big house. It's creating too much, too many contradictions. And in any case, the settlers in South Carolina are past masters at smuggling Africans. And you have these plantations in the middle of nowhere that have African slaves, even though supposedly no Africans allowed. But perhaps the travesty, and this has continued to this very day, is that there has been a trend in the United States for those who say no Negroes allowed to say that they're anti-slavery and therefore they're progressive. <laughs> Even though what they were really trying to do was create a, a kind of uh, apartheid society with no Negroes allowed, just like you have apartheid neighborhoods. I guess you could call these people who try to, you know, you, I guess you could call the uh, guys who got, just got arrested for killing Ahmed uh, Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. They were basically trying to preserve the apartheid nature of that particular community. I guess so I guess they're progressive too. I mean, this is the, the lunacy and the travesty that these historians descend into. And in fact, just to fast forward, I'm, I'm gonna get back to Stoner's Revolt, but to fast forward to the 1850s, you have historians who talk about the, like Oregon, for example, which enters the union in the 1850s. No Negroes allowed in Oregon. And then the historians come along and say, oh, you know, they're anti-slavery. <laughs> no, they're. <laughs> And therefore, they're progressive when they say no Negroes allowed. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous, it's lunacy, but this is where we are right now. But in any case, back to Stono's Rebellion. So these were Angolans. And so you had Spanish from Florida uh, sailing into Charleston, South Carolina, on a regular basis. And they're conspiring with the Africans, which is nothing new. And of course, Portuguese is similar to Spanish. And Angola, of course, uh, was a Portuguese colony, uh, invaded by the Portuguese in the 16th century, by the way. And also many of the Africans were Catholic and the Spanish were Catholic. And so what happens is that, so the Africans revolt, Stonos Rebellion, it's a bloody rebellion, and they're trying to march to Spanish Florida. 
Because interestingly enough, in what's called Fort Mose in Spanish Florida, the, the Spanish whose mode of settler colonialism was different than that of the English and the British, they had soldiers who were Negroes, who were armed. They depended upon them following their class interests. That is to say, just like, you know, you have folks, persons of color who are millionaires and billionaires, not that many. Like Ben Carson? Well, yeah. I don't know if he's a millionaire or a billionaire, but yeah, I guess he was a neurosurgeon, so he probably was. And so they're expected to follow their class interests. And that, that was, and so in some ways, what's happening in the United States is they're catching up with what the Spanish was doing, were doing actually from the inception of Spanish colonialism, say in Cuba in the 1500s. That, that was the model of development. But alas, what happens with these Angolans marching into Florida, they're captured, they're slaughtered, and as was the tendency during that time, they're beheaded with their heads put on spikes and put along the road. I remember I, I, I just for the first time saw the movie Spartacus. Uh-huh. You know, with Kirk Douglas? Yeah. You know, it was about a slave revolt. And apparently, I don't, you know, Howard Fast wrote the novel and Dalton Trumbo wrote the screenplay. I don't know how much that represented reality, but the, in the terms of squashing that slave revolt, there was a similar process of beheading the slave rebels and putting their heads on spikes at about every 10 yards as a way to intimidate any future rebels. So in some, that's known as rebellion. But with regard to this religious conflict, this is dealt with at length in my 16th century book. Mm -hmm. Because basically, in order to understand why we're sitting here speaking English, as opposed to not being here at all or speaking Spanish or Turkish, for example, you have to understand the religious conflict, not only between Muslims, especially the Ottoman Turks who intimidate the Western Europeans by seizing Constantinople in 1453, which in some ways they're marching westward and the Iberians <laughs> are marching westward across the Atlantic. They're sort of being chased across the Atlantic and then they bump into the Americas because as you know, there was this idea float that if they sail west, they could reach the riches of India, for example, which is one of the reasons they call the indigenous people Indians. So it's not only Christians versus Muslim, it's also Christians versus Jewish in the sense that England, well, first of all, Columbus sails in 1492. What else happens in 1492? Spanish Inquisition. Well, yes, not only, well, actually that had begun a little bit earlier, but you have the expulsion of the Jewish population. Mm -hmm. In fact, I present evidence that there were Jewish people on the ship with Columbus sailing across the Atlantic because they were being expelled. And also the beginning of the reconquest, that is to say, ousting the Muslims who had been ruling Spain for hundreds of years uh, from Spain. They're finally ousted altogether in the early 1600s, which is where, where my book ends, the, the new one at least. And then... The other religious conflict is Christian versus Protestant. You all remember uh, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King. No, the German one. <laughs> who, of course, was quite anti-Semitic because there hangs a tale. Because England, according to the historians, in some ways was the first racial state. They expelled the Jewish population in 1290, 1291. But then they do this turnabout because England, as you know, becomes Protestant under Henry VIII, you know, you know the story about 
gets wanting a divorce and he, yep. the church won't give him the divorce. And then he starts the Church of England. Right, exactly. But then, of course, another way to look at it is that his holiness in the Vatican had basically split the world between the Spanish and the Portuguese. So why should England accept that deal? <laughs> so, so, okay, fine. He, he wants a divorce, and so he be, so becomes a Protestant Church of England. But then that sets off these religious wars. But to make a long story short, what happens is that the scrappy underdogs, who are the English, they outflank the Spanish because the Spanish demanded that any settlers in the colonies be religiously correct. You have to be Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, you could be a Negro conquistador if you were Catholic, for example. Not in London. I mean, you know, these descendants of the Londoners in 2020, they still don't want to put guns in the, in the hands of Negroes. Yeah. Absolutely. Supposedly we're free. <laughs> so London moves to a pan-European project. You didn't have to be Protestant to be a settler. And in fact, Maryland, as I talk about in my 17th century book, is settled by Catholics. If you look at Washington, D.C., which is created by a retrocession of land from Maryland, two of the leading universities are Catholic universities. Catholic University in Georgetown, for example. So there was this pan-European project, which also incorporated the Jewish population, which ironically enough, England had expelled in 1290, but you know, they were desperate. And so they, they accepted the Jewish into this larger identity politics of whiteness. One um, actually myth that a lot of people think is that America had freedom of religion, but in your book, you say that New York banned Catholicism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Can mm -hmm. you talk about that? The, well, see, what's happening, it's, it's a process because look at the First Amendment, I mean, which grants freedom of religion. That was meant to signal a ceasefire in the religious wars, which had been bedeviling uh, Europe, certainly since Martin Luther in 1517. And even with the First Amendment, Ray Allen Billington wrote this book, The Protestant Crusade, which talks about as late as 1830s, you have convents being burnt to the ground and sacked. You had all these scurrilous stories told about Catholics and Catholic priests. And as you know, John F. Kennedy was the first Catholic president in 1960. And of course, he has to give this speech where he promises not to be dictated to by the Pope. <laughs> okay. uh, and of course, um, Mitt Romney, the first member of the Church of Latter-day Saints to make a bid for the White House, at least a serious bid, because there have been bids in the 19th century, he has to make a similar speech when he runs against uh, Obama in uh, 2012. So this religious factor has been boiling beneath the surface in the United States. And I argue at the end of my 16th century book that it's like the loose thread on a suit. And I'm not sure if people realize that given how right-wing the United States has become, that creates fertile soil, not only for anti-Black racism, it creates fertile soil for anti-Jewish bigotry, which I would say uh, remains a dire possibility in these United States of America. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been very uncomfortable in the past four years with their anti-Russia hysteria, which often just like melts into anti-Semitism in like a split second. And yeah, I, I agree with you on that. So 
did we talk about Lord Dunmore's declaration? Oh, yes. No, we have. Oh, we and, and, and also George Washington had, there's an enslaved person called Henry Washington. Can we talk about both? Well, let's, let's focus on Lord Dunmore because okay. he is the last colonial governor of Virginia. And in fact, as I have suggested, I don't know if I did it in the book, but I know I've done it somewhere, that you could draw a parallel between Lord Dunmore in 1775, who tries to recruit the enslaved Africans from the ranks of the slaves of Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Patrick Henry, and have them join the Redcoats to liquidate or squash the rebellion mm-hmm. that's bubbling to the surface against London's rule. The analogy is with Abraham Lincoln. Recall the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865. In the early stages, the Confederates were acquitting themselves quite well until, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation, which I think you can accurately see as a warfighting measure, because basically it frees the enslaved and mostly in territories that the Lincoln government does not control. And then, like, for example, in Virginia, (laughs) for example, and then recruits these enslaved Africans into the Lincoln government's army. That's the turning point of the war. But of course, Lincoln, and, you know, there's a controversy about Lincoln now, because even though he's been subjected to a certain kind of whitewashing, the fact is, and I talked about this in my Brazil book, that even after the Emancipation Proclamation, this, this guy was dickering with the Brazilians to send all of us to Brazil, basically. And even after the U.S. Civil War, you had uh, U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant, the victorious general in the U.S. Civil War, who becomes president, who's trying to send all of us to the Dominican Republic. I mean, there, there's been this repetitive impulse to get rid of the Negroes by any means necessary. When, of course, you had the latest expression of that, once again, in Brunswick, Georgia, when they did get rid of a Black person by any means necessary by shooting him with a shotgun in the chest. But in any case, Lord Dunmore's effort to recruit Africans, one of the reasons it doesn't succeed, interestingly enough, is because of a smallpox epidemic, mm-hmm. which wipes out a lot of the Africans. And in fact, you have a number of historians who've who written about the role of microbes in history. Mm-hmm. And as we deal with microbes once again, which by the way, outnumber us by several orders of magnitude. (laughs) I recall that in the 14th century, which by the way, is covered in my 16th century book, you had the plague, which destabilized Europe, Western Europe, destabilized feudalism, and set the stage for the ushering onto the center stage of the system known as capitalism. Uh, It's ironic indeed, that in 2020, we have another plague, which has this capitalist economy in a free fall. And I don't say this with any glee, because I live here. And it's going to get very ugly in the United States in coming weeks and months, I'm afraid to say. But certainly, it's destabilizing the capitalist system. And as the great Italian communist Antonio Gramsci once put it, to paraphrase, It's clear that the old world is dying. The new one has yet to be born. And in the interregnum, these monsters are arising. 
such as this uh, pandemic, and to cite another philosopher who said that the road ahead led to either barbarism or socialism. Here we have in New York City, mass graves with people being dumped in mass graves, refrigerator trucks with cadavers spilling over from refrigerator trucks with nowhere to take them, with a city that has basically been locked down and with no end in sight, with entire industries in free fall, such as hotels, airlines, for example, sports, movies, look at Disney, for example. And yet the comrades of these titans of the 1% are busily scooping up taxpayer dollars and turning it over to these titans of the 1%. And I think it's fair to say that even though slavery was officially abolished in 1865, there's a neo-slavery that's now unfolding because basically what's happened, not only are we being subjected to layoffs and unemployment is beyond the level of the Great Depression of the 1930s with the worst yet to come, I'm afraid, but those who are working, we're paying taxes and then the tax dollars are turned over to these one, to the 1% titans. And so what happens is that the titans on the upside, as they're making profits, those profits are privatized. But on the downside, when they don't foresee a pandemic, which people have been talking about for years, I mean, look at Lori Garrett's book, The Coming Plague, which came out in 1994, for example. So on the downside, when supposedly they get all this money, because supposedly that they can see over the horizon and around the corners. That's why they get these seven and eight figure salaries, yet they don't foresee a pandemic. And so then our hard earned tax dollars and then turned over to them. So we're neo-slaves, for example. We're working in many ways on behalf of the 1%. And yet we're always on the verge of being cast into the reserve army of labor, being cast into the ranks of the unemployed, being cast into the ranks of the unhoused and the homeless in a system that's totally irrational, where you have hotels standing empty with thousands sleeping on the sidewalk, where you have farmers who are destroying their crops as people are lining up for miles to get free food from food banks, and where for-profit hospitals are laying off orderlies and nurses and cafeteria workers and slashing the wages of doctors in the middle of a pandemic. Now, how irrational is that? That is awful. Yeah, I mean, if I were a communist propagandist and if I were making a documentary, I wouldn't even include that because that sounds like too ridiculous to believe. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one thing that I do want to go back to your book on that would, to me, it was extremely interesting is that you talk about the Constitutional Convention and what they discussed and what they didn't discuss. Um, so a lot of times they, the U.S. historians often talk about the Bill of Rights. Yes. And was that discussed in the Constitutional Convention or was that an afterthought? <laughs> well, it's interesting. The Bill of Rights, of course, comes later. There are the 10 amendments to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, the hidden agenda of the Constitution, even though the framers, as they're called, try to avoid mentioning slavery explicitly, but there are all these protectors, protective devices for slavery. 
there are clauses that mandate that you're supposed to return fleeing Africans to their slave owners, for example. In fact, one of the conflicts between Britain and the early United States was that Canada began, because you know, Canada, even today, and here you have you know, one of the largest nations in the world, only has a population of about 33 million, whereas the United States has a population of 330 million. So Canada was accepting fleeing Africans. Now, of course, I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> there, it was paradise for these fleeing Africans, but obviously they didn't want to live in the United States. And so they fled to Canada. As a matter of fact, in my book, 1776 book, towards the end, I use Canada as a control group because the people on the left, to their credit, they oftentimes point to Canada as having universal health care, whereas the United States, as we know, does not, which is another crisis. But what they don't mention is that wouldn't you expect the revolutionary country, so-called, to have that social welfare benefit as opposed to the country that did not revolt against British rule and that stayed under the jurisdiction of London for decades on end and, in fact, still has currency where... Her Majesty the Queen still yeah. looks at you from their <laughs> loony, the Canadian dollar, I mean, for example. So, I mean, this is what I mean about the problematic of settler revolts. That's something that has managed to escape the attention of these historians. But so the bill already mentioned the First Amendment, which, of course, among other things, guarantees freedom of religion, which is a way to try to call a ceasefire in the religious wars. And then the Second Amendment, which is still bedeviling us, guaranteeing militias mm. uh, the right to arm, obviously that bespeaks the need for the settlers to organize to seize the land of the Native Americans yep. and to squash slave revolts. That's what the Second Amendment was all about. So this is this much commented on and supposedly progressive U.S. Constitution. And what's happening now, of course, is that the contradictions are sharpening in the uh -huh. midst of this pandemic, and people who are housebound have a lot of time to read, have a lot of time to think about how we got to this brink of catastrophe and this brink of disaster with this oaf in the Oval Office who obviously uh, doesn't have a plan except to continue to line the pockets of himself, his children, and his comrades. And the, but once again, the spanner in the works is that as of today, even though I'm like many, I'm going to work like hell to make sure this doesn't happen. But as of today, it's not clear that he'll be defeated in November. I mean, Probably not. <laughs> how, you know, if that doesn't make people think. I, I mean, uh, for me, this is what I always say. Like, like, how do you expect a system created by slaveholding genocidal maniacs to spit out justice? Just look at the inputs and then you're like surprised it doesn't spit out justice? Well, I mean, I mean it's clear to you, it's clear to me. The question <laughs> is the 62 million who voted for Donald John Trump in 2016. But of course, once again, to circle back to in a sense where we began, you can't understand that 2016 result unless you understand class collaboration, unless you understand settler colonialism, which involves a co collaboration 
across class lines between and amongst richer and poorer Europeans, you can't understand this 2016 election unless you understand, for example, Bacon's Rebellion of 1676, which I do think I talk about in my 1776 book. Oh, you book. absolutely do. It, it, yes. Yeah. And I definitely talk about it at length in my 17th century book because that's been the locomotive of U.S. history, which is class collaboration. That's one of the reasons why unions are so weak. Unions of working class people are so weak. Often unions collaborated with the CIA to overthrow communist leaders in Africa, for example. Absolutely. That's in my book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus Liberation of Southern Africa. As a matter of fact, in that book, if you turn to what I write about the Portuguese Revolution of 1974, mm -hmm. which was a turning point in the history of Southern Africa, what's interesting <laughs> is that, so it's April 25th, 1974. And so the CIA is writing memos after, they, they're basically willing to give up. The AFL-CIO leaders land in Lisbon and they're telling the CIA to man up. <laughs> you know, this, this story ain't over. I did not realize that. Like, there's always been this joke calling them AFL-CIA, but I had no idea that they were that reactionary. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's quite an incredible story. Yeah, I mean, it's this guy named uh, Irving Brown. I actually, I talk about him in my Kenya book, too, mm -hmm. because um, he's the liaison between the labor movement and the CIA. As a matter of fact, <laughs> the, the saying that many progressive writers have, you want to keep a secret, publish it in a book. <laughs> <laughs> because in my book on Kenya, which came out maybe shortly after the 2008 election, I pointed out a rather, I wouldn't call it irrelevant, I, I would call it just a, an interesting factoid, which is that Barack Obama Sr., the father of the 44th president, when he's recruited to come to the University of Hawaii to become a student, and then, of course, you know, he meets um, this he woman mother. there and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, on the way to Hawaii from Kenya, he stops over in Paris and meets with Irving Brown. Now, I'm not sure what the meaning of that meeting was, although if I were not working on so many books now, and if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, I'd probably try to dig into that further. But certainly that's something one of your listeners might want to dig into. Oh, Absolutely. Well, I have you. Um, so this is just an internet debate. But since I have you as an expert, I was hoping you could explain this. I'm not asking on my behalf, but I'm asking because there's some like really annoying white YouTubers who don't understand what is pan-Africanism versus like what is black nationalism. And could you please just explain it like they're five? Well, you know, th there's a certain overlap, but they're analytically distinct. Mm hmm. Pan-Africanism certainly is articulated by W.E.B. Du Bois and Kwame Nkrumah, mm -hmm. for example, is an idea that in some ways is being embodied in the African Union as we speak. That is to say, a, a kind of United States of Africa. Just last year, you had the inking of the African Continental Free Trade Association, which tries to create a common market amongst four dozen plus African nations, and that, 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 that's a kind of Pan-Africanism. Now, Black nationalism, you, you could interpret Pan-Africanism as an offshoot of Black nationalism, but oftentimes when we talk about Black nationalism, oftentimes we're talking about it in a U.S. context, mm -hmm. and we're talking about uh, specifically U.S. phenomena, 
such as the Black Power Movement, which arises in the 1960s. Uh, you're talking about figures like Malcolm X. Now, as I said, there's a certain overlap, but I think it would not be appropriate to collapse the distinction, which I think is a useful distinction between and amongst them. In any case, it seems like uh, we're reaching the end of our discussion. Almost. Um, I have one last question. So you have written like thousands of books. And so I guess, do you have any recommendations to like, what is it that progressives need to do right now in regards of practical action, if you had to give them one recommendation? Well, I'll give three recommendations. Okay. Organize, organize, organize. I'm giving a talk on um, WBAI, which will be taped in a couple of hours. Oh, in New York? In the radio? Oh, excellent. They're doing a special on capitalism. And I end the talk by saying that obviously there are a number of progressive demands we need to put forward. Everybody knows what they are. Universal health care, subsidized child care, subsidized elder care, paid sick leave, et cetera. But I think that the foundation for getting those demands would be for more organizing, particularly amongst unions. We need more working class people in unions and also tenant unions. In other words, we need more people who are existing in inherently antagonistic situations, such as worker versus capitalist, landlord versus tenant. We need the the workers and, and the tenants to organize. And secondly, I would say we need a revived black liberation movement, not as a result of what some folks on the left talk about identity politics, which I think is an insulting and contemptuous term, but it's because the slave-slaveholder relationship was an intensely antagonistic relationship, plus it was a class relationship. Of course. And anybody who knows the history of North America knows that the folks who have been going toe-to-toe with the slaveholders and their descendants Ever since 1565, when the Spanish settlement in St. Augustine, Florida, have been the Africans, oftentimes in league with the Native Americans, who, of course, were subjected to liquidation and genocide. So those, or and then I think organizing a revived Black liberation movement would help to keep the leadership of the unions honest. Because as I said, we have this class collaboration virus amongst too many of our Euro-American friends, not least in the leadership of these unions. And so we need some sort of check on them, which could come from the Black Liberation Movement, which of course comprises a significant percentage of the labor force, uh, particularly in terms of postal workers, city workers, auto workers, et cetera. So that's my recipe that I'll be articulating on WBAI for their two-hour special on capitalism. Okay, and I will include, when we release it, we'll probably release it in a few weeks, I'll include a link to your talk to to that in the description box. Oh, good. Oh, include a link to my book uh, on the 16th century too. It'll be out in a few days. Thank you so much. And like I said, I loved your book, um, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, just because it was so rich in detail and so much description. And then you go through the economics, the social relations, all through three continents. So that was just like amazing for me. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, have a great uh, evening. You do the same. Good luck. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E 
C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.